Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Rundown. Joining me for a chat about the current state of the Democratic Party primary and the way it's shaping up at this very, very early stage is Daniel Marins. Daniel has been on the show many times now. He is our go-to electoral politics correspondent, if you will. You might even call this the Marins Minute. It's going to be very informative. We break down the state of the field right now as it stands. We have, I don't know, 20, 25 some odd candidates in the fray right now. It's going to start to thin out very soon as the donors pick sides, as some of the early primary results and the polling that leads up to that sort of shakes out. But until then, it's a clusterfuck, people. And Daniel Marriage is going to help us sort that out. Additionally, there's been some clarity reached, I think, with respect to the left-wing policies of Bernie Sanders and the rest of the field. Uh, as many of you will know, Beto O'Rourke has been pushing his Medicare for America policy, which is most definitely not Medicare for all. And a lot of the other candidates have walked back their earlier support of Medicare for all, which would be a single-payer health care system in the United States free at the point of service. Only Bernie Sanders right now is sticking to his guns. Everyone else has walked that back significantly. Now, that could be good for Sanders or that could be bad for Sanders. So Daniel Marins and I are going to break that down in the coming interview, along with many, many other stories. So patrons, thanks again for all of your support. We could not do this without your generosity. And thanks to that, we're going to be launching a website in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be hosted at deadpundits.com. You can head over there now, check it out. It's just kind of a little under construction page. It's not going to look like that once it's finally up, and I'm excited to show you that final iteration in just a few months. But until then, we're going to be doing a t-shirt fundraising drive in order to offset some of the costs. I've spent the last six months investing thousands of dollars in video production equipment, software, website hosting fees, and all that stuff. And hopefully this t-shirt drive will help to recoup some of those costs, because this shit is expensive, folks. And additionally, you're going to get a fly-ass t-shirt. I posted a teaser of the, the sample shirt that I ordered up on the Twitter, at Dead Pundits, and the Facebook page. Many of you have already seen that. Check it out if you haven't already. It's a well-fitting shirt. It's very comfortable. I think it's fly as hell, people. You know, I think you, know, you rocked that this summer, and you're going to be the talk of the town. I'm just saying. Anyway, the link to that fundraising drive is in the show notes. Pick up that shirt. It is exclusively available for, at this fund drive. I don't plan on selling that or making that available anytime after this. It's a little pricey. It comes in at 35 bucks, but it is a fundraiser. And the cost of the shirt is quite high, and I just kind of take a percentage off the top in order to help recoup these costs. So check out that link in the show notes. Get you a T-shirt. That's only going to be available for two weeks. So hit that up while you can. Get it while it's hot. All right, enough of the funding pitch for today. Everybody enjoy my interview with Dan Marins. Daniel Marins, how you doing, my man? It's my understanding you are hot on the campaign trail. You were in South Carolina hanging out with Bernie Sanders, writing some stories. Talk to us about the scene that you encountered in South Carolina a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so I should say that that, that scene was kind of the capstone of a two-week period or two- or three-week period after which he announced. And I was at his big first announcement rally in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in, at the very beginning of March, beginning of this month. 
And then I actually followed him because I've, I've been sort of intrigued by this idea of how what kind of inroads he can or cannot make among African-American voters, particularly in the South, the Southern states where they, uh, where black voters tend to make up a majority of the Democratic primary electorate. Obviously, South Carolina is third in the country in terms of primary contests, second technically because Iowa's a caucus, but whatever. Um, and because the morning after Brooklyn, he spoke very early in the morning. I mean, frankly, it was early it was earliest because we all had to show up before a secret service sweep because Hillary spoke and she was the main event. Uh, but a, just an, an annual uh, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King uh, uh, unity breakfast in Selma, Alabama to commemorate the march across the Edmund Pettus bridge in 1965 for voting rights. And then later that day, of course, he held his big rally in Chicago. And so a couple of weeks later, I wanted to check out his first trip back to South Carolina, sort of the site of, what was arguably a devastating loss in 2016 that ended up kind of setting the tone for him. And, and there are many different ways to slice the, the the pie, but I think it's fair to say that um, it would have been a very different primary and a much more competitive one for Sanders if his margins at least had been better in some of these Southern states. Now, again, more than one way to skin a cat, slice a pie, whatever metaphor you want to use, but from a purely electoral perspective, and, and Adam, you know, you and I have discussed back and forth what the what we might consider a good faith critique of Sanders, you know, in regards to his plans for addressing uh, what we might call the way human beings have been racialized in this country. But there is also the political reality of the matter, which is sure. that black voters, though they have, according to polling, very high opinions of Bernie Sanders individually whether they'll they'll sort of break for him in any significant way and what he's been doing to try to 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 accomplish that and to try to court surrogates in that community i will say that south carolina is still going to be a difficult nut to crack i think that it's a state where the democratic party establishment much of it you know sort of business friendly uh, centered in, in municipal power not even like state level power but municipal power mayoralties, county commissions, that sort of thing. One house seat, Jim Clyburn, and he effectively runs the entire South Carolina Democratic Party. I mean, there is a a white Democrat who now represents the Charleston area, but there is zero chance that he will endorse Bernie Sanders. And I can explain that in a moment. But um, the and 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 it's a network that I think is just very aware of and sensitive of the power that it has in the South Carolina primary. If you think about it, I mean, this past election cycle, there was a swing seat in the House races in South Carolina, precisely because a pro-Trump Republican uh, ousted a popular conservative, but not super pro-Trump Republican in the, in the House Republican primary. But ordinarily, South Carolina doesn't really receive much attention from the Democratic Party, aside from the role that it played in the presidential primary. And I think Democratic Party officials are acutely aware of that and are they're really looking for they're looking for the money you can throw their way in terms of the churches, in terms of consulting fees, in terms of investments in their local and state party. I mean, there's no real other way for them to keep the lights on, I think it's fair to say. And so you have traditional gatekeepers in that community. And I you know, one thing that struck me, I had lunch with uh, Reverend Joseph Darby, who is the pastor of 
an African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in downtown Charleston. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Obviously, he was telling me that most of his, his church members no longer live in the city proper of Charleston because of gentrification. And he, ba- he can't be for tax reasons. He can't make full on endorsements. But he was sort of saying to me, it's between Biden, Harris and, and Booker for him. And, and he tends to show his it, he tends to let his congregants know uh, sort of generally how he's feeling without making explicit endorsements from the pulpit. And, you know, that, that's sort of what we might expect. The Joe Biden being the establishment figure that that was Obama's vice president. And he, and he said to me point blank on the record, you know, I don't think that Joe Biden's past of supporting busing segregations will hurt him any more than Bernie Sanders's uh, support for the civil rights movement will help him. Well, okay, but that was his perspective. And, and th- that gives you a little bit of insight into just how cautious, well, maybe either you could argue cynical. I mean, I, I would also say that that these are folks that are very keenly attuned to sort of the extraordinarily reactionary extremes of American politics. I mean, Black Americans living in the South under extraordinarily conservative Republican rule. And so there, at least the perspective of, of this minister and other folks who I've spoken to is like, well, we need a moderate to, to, to win back the White House. And Joe Biden, you know, he served Obama well, and he's got that kind of, you know, moderate, jovial white guy thing going on. And in terms of Bernie himself, I mean, we saw it in his Brooklyn speech and then certainly in his Chicago speech. He's been emphasizing his personal life more. He's been speaking about his history sort of growing up in a working class household, the son of a Polish Jewish immigrant on his father's side with family members who, who perished in the Holocaust. And, and also really discussing in, in his Chicago speech, his history of activism in the civil rights movement, which people close to him tell me he's reluctant to talk about precisely because he was doing it in the North and it was relatively safe for him which is, again, just classic Bernie, right? Like, you know, self-righteous almost to a fault. I mean, I think like there's obviously personality. There's something admirable about that from a character perspective. By South Carolina, he, he wasn't even talking about his Chicago arrest. It's not a part of his normal stump speech. It was like, okay, I'm going to talk about my anti-housing segregation and anti-education segregation activism in Chicago, in Chicago, in one speech. And that's basically it. And I'll let like Nina Turner and Sean King and a few other people talk about it in their speeches more often. But he does have this whole section now about what he calls the disparity within the disparity. Yeah. So just to contextualize this a little bit for you uh, listeners out there, you wrote a piece, uh, Daniel, on March 15th for HuffPo called Bernie Sanders Tests an Updated Pitch in Once Hostile Territory. And you outlined your uh, this this vision, you know, this this um, this notion that Bernie is trotting out and testing out some new lines, and and you you bra- you raise the disparities within the disparities kind of approach to this kind of race and class intersection that he's testing out on the campaign trail, and it's something that I I think is very interesting because it's 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 something that doesn't lose the class element, but also talks about the explicitly African American experience of class particularly in a state like fucking South Carolina, my God. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty interesting. And, and I also did a piece really right that came out in early March um, called, uh, I'll pull it up again. I, I think, you know, again, some of this, you know, some of your, your Marxist listeners might 
not necessarily agree with some of my analysis. But um, uh, the, the, that piece uh, that came out on March 5th was called Bernie Sanders Struggled with Black Voters. His campaign is working overtime to fix that. And in that, in that piece, I discussed the basically Nina Turner said to me, he's like, sometimes Bernie doesn't talk enough about the disparity within the disparity. So I think it's, it's kind of a phrase that she clearly might have put him onto. And what it allows him to basically say is we have this society that's incredibly stratified based on class where, you know, a tiny percentage of a population is hoarding all the income, wealth, power, control over, over enormous suffering on the remainder of the population. And within that, there is a disproportionate impact on African-Americans precisely because of the historic policies that prevented them from accumulating wealth, accessing uh, education, housing, uh, uh, professional success, uh, and frankly, even even the franchise. And in many ways, the franchise still, uh, there, there are enormous issues with that today. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, you might quibble with some of the scholarship about whether the disparity in criminal justice sentencing is really due to uh, you know, sort of entrenched discrimination. And, and, and I know that you, you raised some of the important research that Adana Usmani has done on that. But that's certainly kind of the, that's a consensus right now, I think, on, on the center left and the left. And, and he nods to it. And, you know, one of the things I highlighted in that, that Charleston rally, I think people in the audience appreciated it. It was like a predominantly white audience in a yeah. A plurality, uh, heavily black uh, suburb of Charleston called North Charleston. You know, I mean that that was mm-hmm. that was the town where um, Walter uh, Walter Walter Scott was was shot in the back Scott. by the cop. Um, you know, uh, and one one of the people I honed in on though, and, and again, I we we can talk about sort of the the race counting, which I find to be. Weird, you know. I, I I gave it what I thought might have been an appropriate nod in my piece, but we can talk about like the opposite extreme of that. But you know, one of the things I I, I it's hard to identify unique elements of these rallies. I joke that seeing candidates, especially when I will, will would travel to do like a whole weekend of events with a single candidate, and they'll deliver like seven stump speeches, and it's basically the same the entire time. I, I joke that it's like following a jam band on tour, and you're you're kind of just looking for that. For that for that baseline, forty yeah, minutes yeah. in, where they might just vary it up a little. Show me that extra symbol crash or whatever here and there to kind of get you going. And so you're curious, kind of what they're testing out here and there, or what they're sort of vamping for the the um, you know the specific nature of that crowd that they're talking to that day or whatever. Let's talk about the the head counting, which is kind of showing itself in an interesting way. Another piece you sent me that has a kind of different take on on this uh, this rally that you went to uh they really they well they quite literally counted heads uh they noted that uh, there were about 1600 people who came to see the candidate and at this north charleston south carolina rally fewer than 40 were black reports uh the the washington post and so you know i mean i think they then use that you know very hard statistic i mean it's you know, I'm sure they were able to actually count heads, which is a weird thing to do. But then to, they use that statistic to try to argue that that, therefore, is proof or evidence that Bernie isn't popular among black uh, South Carolinians. That's a that's a quite a big leap to make, in my estimation. Wouldn't you say now just because the, the audience of a rally is overwhelmingly white doesn't mean that actually existing black South Carolinians aren't 
potentially excited about a Bernie candidacy. So that that's the conflation that concerns me there. Um, I don't want to say like going to a Bernie rally is just a white thing, right? And it's just not, you know, black, young black folks aren't interested in doing something like that because that's, you know, that's also silly. But I don't know. It seems like a leap. I mean, is it risky? Yeah, I, I, it, it's just there is an extraordinarily small percentage of Democratic primary voters who go to rallies, right? And we can probably try to showcase some of the perspectives we get in those rallies. I'm just hesitant to to uh, extrapolate the conclusions too globally. Right. I mean, hell, dude, a Bernie rally is like a little too white for me. Okay. Like, I mean, it's just, I think a Bernie rally is probably like one of the whitest spaces on the planet, really. I mean, let's be honest about that. And I love, I love Bernie voters. They're like salt of the earth that, you know, good hearted, clean cut uh, coders, you know, who will someday probably... Uh, have a multi-million dollar house somewhere in uh, Silicon Valley or whatever. Like there's a very kind of like small slice of the demographic out there that's kind of the prototypical Bernie rally goer. Um, I don't know. We're just kind of, I'm just kind of uh, making up statistics off the top. Yeah, of I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't really people. know, right? Like I, I, I imagine that there's a there's a class dimension to it, and, yeah. and the way right, that right. that class is racialized in a place like South Carolina, so that. You know, like like what percentage of that audience has a college degree? I'm willing to bet it's pretty freaking high. But, you know, I'd like to see some. Yeah, some. Yeah, I'd like to see some some data on, you know, uh, rally goers or whatever before we start extrapolating too directly to, to say, therefore, an absence of black faces in an audience means that they're not excited about said candidate, I guess. Is right. I think like polling surrogates, that sort of thing might be more telling. <laughs> Happiness that you